just to let you all know that soon I'm going to make it live. So you might want to be careful. Uh, all right, no, Ollie, don't, don't make it don't make it live yet. Just hold off a bit. I will, I will, I will. Because and just, let me know first because this computer is now saying one minute remaining. So I have high hopes. Okay. That I can actually have what is a decent camera and things and. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say this, but I suspect the desktop is more stable than the laptop, which you can also quote back when this goes completely wrong in a few minutes' time. I mean, it's loading up, so I'm not sure how stable it appears. Uh, and it's just a lot easier for me on the desktop because there are two screens that I can have the questions on at the same time as the screen, so I can sort of watch everything at the same time. This is the longest minute Apple has ever subjected me to. <laughs> 58. So even if we start one minute late, Ollie, let's do that, yeah? Before you go live? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. So let's see. Oh, God, go on. Go on, thin white line. I mean, if worse comes to worst, I suppose I can do this after we've started, but I'd really rather avoid that. So the plan is to go to a quarter past two our time, so an hour and 15, just to check everyone's happy with that. Mm-hmm. I still make it, we've got two minutes left, so I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, me about too. That. I mean, I genuinely didn't decide to update my computer just before coming on the call. It just said, before I had noticed it, restarting in five, four, three, two, one, and then it just restarted. And I was like, <laughs> What? <laughs> now sounds like your IT department needed <laughs> to do something well, I'm, a, I'm at home so actually uh, they, they can't help me uh, but one of the reasons I've come home is because actually the picture quality if you work in the public sector you get resigned for the fact that your Wi-Fi and picture quality is far better at home than it is at work interesting <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, did this, I did this FT thing the other day and I had this, and so I'm sitting in this office and I look like basically a black blob on the screen because the lighting's dreadful and everything else. And I had this intense office envy. Everyone else had these sort of steel staircases and glass doors and windows and corridors. And they sort of, none of them could quite believe that that was my office. They all assumed I was at home. All right, hang on one sec. Slido is up. This is getting very exciting. I'm going to leave this call and I'll be back. Ollie, don't start till I'm back. I'll see you in two minutes. Yeah, see you in a bit. Hello. Right. You ready for me to start? Give me one sec, Ollie, just to get everything I need on the screen, which is the briefing and everything. Um, You might want to move the laptop and the book on the desk. That'll do, won't it? No. So it looks a bit messy. Well, I mean, I'm messy. What can I tell you? (laughs) That's what I think that's fine. Happy? Yeah. You don't sound happy, Ollie. <laughs> the book is, is making me... Can you mute it? Does the book go up onto the laptop? 
I'd also like to tell you it's a really rubbish book. But we're recording, so I'm not going to tell you what it is. That's good. Okay. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go live in a bit. I'll let you know when it's up. Yeah, let me know when we're Okay, it says we're now streaming live, which I imagine means we're now live. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the second of our events for this week, uh, one where we're going to look ahead to the forthcoming German election with what I have to say is a panel I'm very, very proud of. We've got Annette Ditter, who's Senior Correspondent and Bureau Chief of ARD, the German TV channel. Max Bergman, who's Senior Fellow for the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. And from Berlin, we've got Christian Odendahl, who's Chief Economist at the Center for European Reform. We will also, I hope, be joined by Daniela Schwarzer, who's Executive Director for Europe and Eurasia at the Open Society Foundation. Daniela, I think, is currently trapped either in an airport or on an aeroplane i'm not entirely clear but she says she will try and join us as soon as she can and our thoughts and prayers are with her if she's traveling at this time so without further ado and just to sort of kick us off generally as ever for the audience stick your questions on slido vote for the ones you want me to pose to the panelists because as you're all aware now i'm pretty rubbish at this and i'm more likely to ask the questions you give lots of votes to because i'm a populist at heart but just to just to get the ball rolling, uh, and I'll come to you in the order in which I introduced you, if that's all right. Just just tell me briefly what you think the big things to look for on this election and its biggest potential consequences might be. Annette. Yeah, I think uh, the biggest thing to look forward to is whether we get a government in the end and which one, because this is probably the most unpredictable election uh, Germany ever had, especially when it comes to the parties that will then in the end form a government, because uh, according to all the polls over the last weeks and days, uh, this will most probably be three parties and there are a lot of options. What I find really interesting, especially as I watch it mostly here from London, although I'm in contact with a lot of my colleagues in Germany who are reporting uh, from the grassroots perspective or also from Berlin, is that, I mean, there's just mostly one person who's dominating these elections, and that's the future absentee Angela Merkel. Um, uh, the approval rates of Angela Merkel are as high as they have been, rarely been, I think even higher than during the good phase of the corona policy when it went still really rather good for for Germany so in a way I mean having a head of state who which is quite has been quite rare in history I think who who stands down on her own uh yeah to her own no she wanted to go down to 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 leave the office which is which is unheard of I think and you look at most countries and most governments she she has done the right thing apparently because she is so popular that uh, it, the whole election now, in a way, uh, goes around who is the best successor, who is most similar to her. And surprisingly enough, it's not the candidate of her own party who has been able to do that, but the, uh, the candidate of the Social Democrats. And I think that has to do a lot with the CDU being hurt most by Merkel standing down, because that party, that's how I observed it here, felt, okay, we have to start afresh now after Merkel. There was a lot of frustration within the CDU when it came to Merkel's dominance over the party. So the CDU CSU was sort of like 
yeah, wanted to start anew and totally underestimated uh, that this is not what the German public wants or wanted. I mean, stability in Germany is still so much more sexy than anything else. And that's the big kind of Erbe of Merkel. That's what she leaves behind. And funny enough, the SPD candidate, the candidate of the Social Democrats, Olaf Scholz, is the one who understood that best and and exploited it best and that's why he's at the moment leading the polls leading as as sort of Merkel's successor if you like he even um was portrait or had a portrait been uh done uh, where he was imitating Merkel's famous hand signature gesture where she does the raute as we say in German which was a, a bit of a joke at first but then it became clear that really is his strategy and Yeah, as it looks at the moment, this is, uh, yeah, this is quite, uh, yeah, quite possibly a very successful strategy. And also, and that's sort of my last thought for now as, as an opening remark, it is interesting that he could do that. And also, again, has to do a lot with Angela Merkel, who pushed the CDU, CSU so far to the center that it's now politically really easy for a social democrat candidate to take over from her without even giving the feel that there will be some kind of friction in doing that. So that's something I find fascinating from here, but I'm sure uh, Christian and Max will be able to add a, a lot more points to it. Thank you. Thanks ever so much. I'm hoping, I don't think Daniela can hear us yet. I'll come back to her. Uh, but Max, what, 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 what do you think are the, the key things we should look at? So uh, I, first, you know, thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, I think it's a fascinating election. Uh, in fact, it kind of feels like an American style election in which, uh, policy isn't very, isn't front and center, uh, very much about the personality of the candidates. Uh, and, and as such, uh, I think, you know, Annette's point that it's been about who is the sort of best successor to kind of continue the status quo. Uh, I think it makes it quite a fascinating election. But I think what's been interesting about Schultz is that Well, he sort of marketed himself both as uh, kind of a continuation as uh, someone that you can trust uh, trying to sort of emulate Merkel. There is sort of this sense that we're going to propose new things. Uh, and he has run and emphasized uh, uh, increasing the minimum wage and other sort of um, strong sort of social traditional sort of social democratic stances. So I think there is sort of, uh, you know, sort of keeping some of what would be traditional center left policies, but then marketing it in a kind of very centrist frame. And it has sort of echoes of Joe Biden and uh, how he kind of, you know, marketed himself and, and, and ran for president uh, in, in uh, 2020 here in the United States. But for me, I, I think the most fascinating thing when I look at this election or the thing that I think is maybe the most important, I think that the margins are going to be very important. Um, and in particular, Uh, I think who gets the finance ministry in the, you know, if there is a government uh, is the most important, maybe the most important question. And if the FDP uh, joins uh, a coalition uh, with the S SDP, with the Greens, uh, or even in a, in a CDU Green coalition uh, and, and gets the finance ministry, I think that's tremendous implications for Europe. I think that has tremendous implications for uh, the German military. Uh, where I, I'm sort of most concerned about uh, a German Germany sort of returning to kind of the days of austerity uh, and not making the sort of investments that are needed and, and sort of going back uh, uh, 
uh, sort of resisting future efforts to take the European recovery package that was agreed to last summer in making that sort of a core part of a European fiscal policy. I think you'll see sort of a real retrenchment uh, and we'll sort of repeat kind of the debates that, that have happened in the last decade in Europe. Uh, I don't know if that's, I don't necessarily think that's the consensus view in Washington. I think most people here in DC are frankly just concerned about where Germany will end up vis-a-vis -vis China in particular, but also on Russia. And there, I think there would be some concern of a new government, uh, particularly uh, with some of Laschet's comments, but also just, you know, having Merkel um, having taken somewhat of a firm line when it came to Russia, at least after 2014. Uh, and there's a great sort of assurance in her, in her leadership here in Washington. I think some of that sometimes is, is overstated and misguided, but there's a kind of a trust in Merkel. And that's why I think she sort of received the first state, vi vi state visit uh, here in Washington this summer. Uh, but so I think those are some of the other policy questions of where does German foreign policy sort of end up uh, after this election in particular, because it wasn't sort of a core part of the campaign. And just a last point, I think part of the re Washington became very sort of uh, infatuated with the Greens uh, when Annalena Burbach sort of uh, raced into the lead, partly because of a, a, a foreign policy really focused on values and human rights that I think uh, we saw as sort of very aligned with the, the current administration here in Washington, one that would take sort of a stronger stance on China due to human rights abuses and on Russia. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see how things shake out if there is a, a coalition government or when there is a coalition government, uh, where the Greens end up and whether that sort of uh, uh, drives the potential foreign policy of an ex-German government. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, welcome, Daniela. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm just I'm posing a sort of very softball question to everyone, which is what is the key thing to look out for in this election? I should warn you all, we've got absolutely tons of questions already. So we'll try and get through as many of those as possible. And I can answer one of them already from Anne Black, which is, have we started yet? I apologize <laughs> for the fact that we're late. That's entirely my fault because my computer decided to restart at four minutes too. And so that was what went wrong. So it's all down to me. But Christian, I mean, what are the stakes when it comes to both the German economy and how the next German government might view the Eurozone? Uh, economy uh, and, and how how it views sort of fiscal policy looking ahead particularly I think matters for the eurozone yeah that's what it does and this is one of the I mean as an economist of course I'm looking looking at, at these issues um, and and what I'm looking out for is how much has the debate on fiscal policy in Germany really changed and how does that affect sort of the coalition talks uh, that we're going to see so, of course, Germany is known for its hawkish stance on, on uh, fiscal policy as a macroeconomic tool on inflation, on public debt, on transfers in Europe. And then Angela Merkel agreed to the EU recovery fund based on your EU debt, common EU debt and sizable transfers to the south. Right. So this is a sort of attention, I think, that uh, that is on many people's minds. So what is going on? What, what, why, why, why was there suddenly this political space that she could do that? And I think there, there, there are six reasons for why the debate has changed. The first is sort of the empirical evaluation of the past, that some of those policies may not have been optimal and that austerity in retrospect was maybe not the greatest idea in Europe. Um, then, of course, low interest rates and the declining debt level in Germany. That's the first time that Germans have experienced declining debt levels in a long time. And so this is sort of has informed or softened sort of the concerns. Um, then I think the pandemic has finally brought home the point that there are some deficiencies in Germany's public infrastructure, 
digitalization, public administration, and so forth. There is generational change simply because it's 10 years since, and there have been new people in, in businesses, in the media, in policymaking that have a different experience and sort of have grown up with the background of the financial crisis and no longer sort of with the 1990s. Um, but I think most importantly are really geopolitics and climate change that have informed this debate. Um, the geopolitical situation during the Euro crisis was very different, or at least perceived as being very different in the German debate. Um, and now sort of Europe's economic strength it has a geopolitical dimension to it. And I think this is Angela Merkel is fully aware of that and it probably has been for quite some time. Uh, but it's also settling in the German debate that we need a united and strong Europe. And that means economically strong as well uh, to be able to, to play a role. Um, and climate change has sort of taken priority. And um, I think in many people's eyes, it's more important that we get climate change right than whether we have low public debt. And so this is the sort of the context in which this whole debate has changed, but it was still sort of the conservative, the old conservative narratives that Angela Merkel bought into and, you know, re-emphasized repeatedly in, 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 her, in her time in office. Um, that sort of is, it, it's not entirely clear to me how far this, how far this goes, right? And in the coalition talks, we know relatively certain, with relative certainty, if there's anything like that in this German election, that um, we need three parties in government and one of those three parties will have to jump across the aisle anyway, right? So either the Free Democrats, a sort of liberal conservative party, particularly conservative on fiscal matters, um, joins the Social Democrats and the Greens, or the Greens in turn join the Christian Democrats um, and the Free Democrats. And both of that will have implications. For example, who's the finance minister, as Max said, right? This is one mm -hmm. of those symbolic victories, I think, that the, that the party that has to jump across the aisle will have to claim. Um, and how willing the Free Democrats, and particularly under Schultz, will be to let sort of fiscal policy play a more meaningful role, both domestically and in Europe. I think this is exactly what I'm looking out for. And, and I'm pretty excited about the sort of the, the prospect of change there. I have to ask you, do you remember six things off the top of your head or do you write them down? Because if you remembered six and did six like that, that's bloody impressive. So, Anna, it's not the first time I have, have oh, right, okay. my fiscal right. policy in <laughs> Europe. But yeah, those six I had at the top of my head. <laughs> Daniela, coming to you, I hope we'll be able to hear you. I mean, I should warn you that actually you don't need to speak for too long because an awful lot of the questions we're getting in are about foreign policy. So these are going to bounce to you anyway. But what do you think is the key thing to look for in this election? Well, I guess the striking thing about this election is that foreign policy issues hardly played a role in the electoral campaign. So uh, the three-stage TV debates uh, had really nothing of substance in, in, with regards to foreign policy. However, there were two debates rather early in the campaign, which were staged by the Munich Security Conference, and then there was the WDR Europe Forum, where the candidates were called out on, on their positions. They weren't really far, far apart, and one of the conclusions was of those two uh, those two debates, they could very well form a coalition altogether, which will very probably not happen. However, now the foreign policy situation over the past two, three weeks has really changed. And it is striking to see that no one really uh, deems it necessary in Germany to integrate this into the electoral campaign. I just want to quote two things. Obviously, uh, Afghanistan and uh, the way the U.S. withdrew 
from the country and the consequences this had for Germany, which had to secure its own troops, their families, uh, the embassy staff and the local contractors, and ideally also a number of NGOs, which were in the country and supported by Western powers. This really caused uh, a big foreign policy debate within Germany. And now secondly, and more recently, uh, the uh, withdrawal of Australia from the nuclear deal with the French and uh, the replacement by the US and the British in that deal, which raises the question of European presence in the Indo-Pacific. So two very important issues, one more about security and defense, the other more about the strategy towards China. And this has been literally absent at the candidate statements over the past weeks mm. or days. Now, what to look out for, I think um, the first thing that would be, I think, uh, you know, very interesting to look at from a foreign policy perspective, if there were coalition negotiations with Die Linke, so the far left party, because that is really the only party that has controversial foreign policy positions, namely uh, questioning NATO, questioning deployment of German troops abroad, saying actually this is not going to happen with us anymore. They have become softer over the past weeks because uh, all the candidates for chancellor have said that this is a no-go for them. And their hope is, of course, that they might negotiate with Olaf Scholz if he comes out first as the East SPD candidate for chancellor. Um, all the others, I think we will see nuances, obviously, on the fiscal piece. And this has already been mentioned. There will be differences with the Social Democrats more open. Olaf Scholz very much being the architect of the recovery fund, which is something that the Christian Democrats see as temporary. So they do not want a strong fiscal capacity in the EU. They do not like the idea that the EU borrows money in the financial markets together. Um, and so there will be differences in that regard because the SPD does see this as an interesting tool to raise money for uh, European investment that will be necessary for all the transition we have to go through. I mean, maybe maybe I'm just excessively cynical, but one of the things that has struck me over the last couple of weeks as this election looks very, very close is how everyone slightly waters down their firm principle stances on whatever it might be to leave the door open to talk to other people. And that will be a very interesting thing to watch, I think, in coalition negotiations. One thing I should say, and it, it sort of breaks my heart that I'm going to say this and sort of plug the competition, but for those interested in the foreign policy side of this, the Centre for European Reform's recent podcast, well, I know, I know, I, I can't believe I'm doing this, with uh, Sophia Pesch and Claudia Mayor on, on the foreign policy implications of the German election, I thought was very, very good indeed. Right, I'm going to turn to the questions from the audience. Can I just say to the panellists, because there are four of you, you don't all need to answer every question, because we have got an awful lot of questions, so don't feel the need to... I'll, I'll make sure no one is left in silence for too long. Uh, but an awful lot of this, obviously, because we're very parochial, we're going to start with AUKUS, which is what the first question is about, and whether or not what happened over those submarines and the subsequent fallout and the sort of mega strop that Macron's having about it all, will that, will that make the Germans more interested in being more proactive when it comes to European defence and working with the French, do we think? I mean, when I say you don't all have to enter, it'd be really nice if one of you did. Uh, <laughs> Max. Oh, go, on, yeah, go ahead, Danielle. I want to hear what Daniela says first, because I want to hear the German perspective, then I can add kind of the perspective here in D.C. I think 
this example, along with what happened in Afghanistan, really nurtures anti-American sentiment in Germany. That's the first thing. And that is there anyways. And it's quite puzzling because if you look at more sophisticated opinion polling where you don't only ask you, you know, who's your preferred partner in the world and what you think about transatlantic relations, those who are critical of, of America and our close ties with the U.S., uh, don't really have an alternative to suggest. Um, and so there's this dissatisfaction, this criticism, the disappointment now with Biden, while there were so many hopes put into him. Um, and then the question of an alternative, of course, arises. And here your question was, Anand, what about Europe? Does this become more attractive? Mm. I think the whole debate on strategic autonomy, which is a term which is not usually used in the German debate, Mm. Uh, because of its connotations and the interpretation that is present in DC of this idea. Um, but this idea of being able to act, having capabilities and being able to act in the European context, the interest in this topic is growing. And if you talk with, you know, all of the, basically almost all parties, except for the far right IFD, even Die Linke has quite reasonable thoughts on what Europe needs to do to, to act externally to be a stronger global player um, and then it comes to the question how do we get there and this is where it gets really difficult for uh, where I see inconsistencies in the German debate and that is we have to invest within the EU to be a stronger international player so it's very easy to wish for a stronger EU and the example of the Indo-Pacific is one example you know we have a new uh, strategic paper out for a week basically but it is highly unlikely in my view that even the most pro-European German government that may come into office will decisively push the EU forward to actually build capacity to act as a foreign policy or defense actor globally. Interesting. Thank you, Max. So um, I, I think for those who sort of think that U.S. foreign policy is sort of uh, all-knowing and, you know, extremely efficient and well-run, you know, the fact is the White House was like, I think, very much caught off guard by the French reaction uh, I think there was clear understanding France was going to be upset, but this was sort of really driven by the folks that sort of are focused on Asia. There's a real focus on on China. And also, I think there was a sense in Washington that it wasn't up to Washington to inform the French that uh, another country was going to cancel an arms sale with it. And that really a lot of the kerfuffle uh, stems from Australia not informing uh, France ahead of time. Um, and you know, Washington, I think, should have insisted upon that. Uh, but it created a huge uh, mess. Um, and I think it's really rare for European foreign policy issues to dominate uh, American headlines. But that's exactly what uh, this has done. Uh, the administration, I think, saw that um, AUKUS was this real legacy issue, a real sort of point of, uh, of uh, foreign policy achievement for the United States. They wanted to announce it sort of after Afghanistan to sort of right the ship on foreign policy. And um, uh, and so I we're really surprised by the reaction. Now, that said, I think yesterday, um, the call with uh, Emmanuel Macron, there's a line in it that I think is very important in the readout from the White House statement. I think it's going to have real implications uh, for Germany. Uh, and the line was about European defense. And I think part of the whole uh, outpouring of French rage was very much about the submarines, very much about the money that was lost, but also about the fact that the Biden administration hasn't been focused on Europe uh, to the extent that I think they were hoping. I think they were hoping for sort of a new American approach 
to Europe, to Europe that would really sort of not necessarily embrace strategic autonomy, but sort of start uh, really looking at the EU uh, as, as a strategic actor. And that hasn't quite happened, largely because the administration is very busy and hasn't yet sort of really focused on Europe and, and done a real policy review. Mm. Uh, but now that's happening. And I think the thing that I would just point to uh, is that Macron's going to have a summit on EU defense during the French presidency right before his election. I think the meeting that Biden will have with Macron in October that was just announced, is very much going to be focused on that topic. And I wouldn't be shocked to see a real shift in U.S. approach on European defense, where suddenly we've gone from being you know, very opposed, very ambivalent, to then going to France and to Germany and saying, well, what's your plan? What, give us something to get behind. What do you want to do on EU defense? And I think to sort of take this theoretical debate about strategic autonomy, um, which has these sort of very anti-American undertones that then we get very opposed to, but then what are we actually talking about? And I, I think there's a real opportunity for a new German government that will be under pressure uh, to kind of show uh, its, uh, to strengthen its relationship with Paris right away uh, to get on board. And so I, I you know, I think that there, there's a real moment here where I think mm. a new German government is going to be asked to step up by France and potentially even by by Washington. So it'll be, it'll be quite interesting, I think, to see how that plays out in the first few months of the new new German German government. I must admit, something really interesting that I noticed was there was a slight difference between the English language and the French language version of the record of the conversation, because the French were saying that the whole row could have been avoided had the US talked to them. And that wasn't put quite as strongly in the English language version, which I'm sure was just an honest mistake. Uh, I, well, <laughs> the, the English language version did was very diplomatic speak, yeah. but it was like, it did acknowledge that things could have been handled in a slightly yeah. better way, which is like a huge admission for any sort of White House statement. Absolutely. So. <laughs> now, Annette and Christian, I'm going to pose a different couple of questions to both of you. Just, I told you, I get, I always sort of get distracted from the audience questions. But there's a couple of process questions I'm quite interested in. Uh, the first is, isn't does it is it going to matter who holds which ministries? Because if you end up with three parties in government, uh, and you're talking about the foreign ministry, the defense ministry, uh, different ministries, what, what difference does it make if you get a whole range of different parties with very, very different views sometimes on foreign policy holding those ministries? And secondly, if it takes a while to get a German government, is it an issue that there might not be a government in place for the COP26 summit, or does that not really matter? Shall I start and then Christian? Yep, however you prefer. Yeah, I, I think it. Uh, I wanted to add something to what uh, Daniela Schwarzer said, because I do agree that a foreign policy has been strikingly absent from these uh, from these campaigns in the in the three big debates. It wasn't I mean, the EU wasn't mentioned once, or I think once very briefly, which I thought was really astonishing, even if you consider or admit or know that election campaigns never really are really always very interior policy focused in general but still that was striking for me because I totally agree with what Mark says um, this cannot stay like that I mean latest after the election German will have to step up and play a bigger role on on the global stage and there will be a lot of pressure from France especially and from Washington as well what I would like to um depict slightly differently from what Daniela said, I don't think that the three big parties, I mean, or four, like CDU, SPD, Green, and the Liberals do 
really have that similar outlooks on, on or perspectives or ideas on foreign policy. And I think it will be especially interesting whether the Greens will come into that new coalition, because uh, from all they've been saying and from their manifesto, their stance is way more principled when it comes to China and Russia. And that's why, interest, interestingly enough, it's it's the Green Party that is looked at uh, from Washington so closely as well as a potential partner. So I think it will be quite interesting and important whether the Greens will come into that uh, government in the end and whether they will be able to to conquer one of the important ministries like foreign or defence. And I think that might change things uh, because there is, I think they have a slightly different um, perspective on things than the, than the two big parties. Christian. Sure. So one of the things that I, I think is, is important about the process of how the German government works is that the, that the status of the chancellor has even more increased um, under Angela Merkel, not because of her personality, but also because the chancellor in Germany usually sort of shines in foreign policy crises or crises in general. And boy, had Angela Merkel a few of those in the last 10 years. Um, and I, and the other thing to remember is that the, the more sort of complicated um, the coalition becomes, the more detailed the coalition agreement will be. So I think we will have yet another record of the length of the coalition agreement, which is then actually a very elaborate to-do list over over four years. Uh, so the question really is, how much does the individual ministry still have sort of wiggle room to 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 do its own policies? Um, my sense is that you know, in in serious crises or in in in, situ, in in unforeseen circumstances, I think the minister itself will, of course, be in 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 the lead when it comes to responding to whatever it might be. Um, but considering that this will be a complicated three-party coalition, um, I think it will what we call the coalitionsausschuss, so sort of a, a, a coalition council, so to speak. So it will be the three top people from the parliamentary group and the executive of this coalition deciding amongst themselves sort of what is the general course. Um, so I think that the, that, that the importance of the individual minister uh, is probably less, um, less than it used to be uh, in, in say coalitions where there was a clear block. So the CDU and the FDP where the coalition contracts uh, took, uh, I don't know, two weeks to negotiate and that was it. Um, we, we have, we have a bit of a different situation now. Um, and so, and the role of the chancellor has increased quite a bit. It was almost six months last last time, and it took Merkel to to negotiate the coalition after exactly. The and this is last time around. This is what I find almost a bit funny: is last time around, um, after a couple of months, the German public became a bit impatient. You know that there was still no government after four or five months, despite the fact that the exact same government was already in place because it was one grand coalition, you know, following after the other. But still, the German public became sort of impatient. So I think. This sort of this sort of public impatience uh, for for having a government, we don't have sort of Belgian levels of patience, as I may call it. We've got quite a few sort of quite, quite specific questions that are getting lots of votes. The first of which is how might relations between the uh, Germany slash the EU and Russia develop and possibly change after the election? What what implications might this election have for relations between Germany and Russia? That's a nice narrow question for you. I'm looking at Max and Daniela who are looking away. But, you know, I, I think one 
major issue that is about to hit Europe over the winter is is over gas prices and Nord Stream 2. Um, you know, there's lots of reasons that are laid out for why uh, gas prices are going up. But what's clear is that the Russian gas industry didn't surge gas in, into, into Europe over the summer to sort of prepare for winter as they normally do. And there's a lot of speculation uh, here in Washington. I think most of it pretty well informed that this was about the Russians having some leverage to put pressure on European regulators to approve gas to start flowing through Nord Stream 2. Uh, and I think Washington sees this as a real geopolitical tool uh, and for this very reason. Uh, and so I think the relationship with Russia, what I'm curious about is whether that actually materializes in the, in the German uh, conversation um, and whether that impacts the policy toward Russia. I think uh, the Biden administration, I think there was, um, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have said the policy was going to be much more hawkish than it actually has been. Um, in fact, I think it's it's uh, a sort of a byproduct of not having all their people in place. They sort of want to focus on Asia and the Pacific and not have to spend a lot of time on, on Russia. So yeah. I thought initially there would be a lot of pressure on Germany to, to sort of up the uh, intensity um, of its uh, Russia policy. I'm not sure there will be that pressure. So uh, I think the question is then uh, what sort of Russian actions are taken that then cause, uh, that put pressure on, on Germany or, or uh, cause sort of a reckoning. Um, but I think, again, this sort of goes to where, where does the Green Party sort of fall in a coalition? Uh, and if uh, they're involved, I think you're going to have a much more focus on uh, the human rights abuses of the Kremlin, uh, some of the actions of its intelligence services. Uh, and I, you know, if, if not, then I could see a much more focus on, on sort of returning to kind of business as usual in a degree of normalization. And, and I'm not sure where, there's gonna be pressure from the US Congress to go in a more hawkish direction, but I'm not sure it would be pressure from the US administration. Um, so I think it'll, it'll be quite, I think this is a real question on how this sort of plays out and where Moscow, uh, frankly, wants to take relations with, with Europe, because I think they could go in a more positive direction, but easily sort of slide back into a more negative direction as well. Brilliant. Daniela, only if you want to, but you're welcome to chip in if you'd like, or indeed anyone else. Yes, happy to do so. Uh, first of all, let me briefly respond to um, Annette because I want to explain why I think the differences won't be all that big. So it's absolutely right. If you look at the party manifestos, the Greens are much more principled uh, on China, on Russia, on human rights also in their ideas to connect energy and climate policy to trade and all of those things. So you, you could think that there is a huge difference to, for instance, the Merkel government. And I think that is true. But what I see is that also, you know, not all of the CDU is, is really Merkel. If you look at the inner party debates, and in particular the role, uh, for instance, the chairman of our foreign affairs committee, Norbert Röttgen, took on China, uh, in particular in the 5G question, which was very controversial and where he really pushed the German debate. This has changed quite a bit. And the other indicator that, you know, even those, I would say, uh, interest groups that are very close to the Christian Democrats today have a far more realistic view of China and are far more cautious in policies towards China is really the way the German industry developed its own position. This started two years ago with the first strategy paper, and while we today have enormous dependency on China, which is absolutely true and makes them 
more cautious to lightheartedly say we could decouple or we could sanction China big time or whatever comes to mind. Those are structural um, realities that also the Greens will face in government. So I will be very interested to see how they manage to build levers for their approach towards human rights policies, which I think is stronger, far stronger than the CDU and the SPD have put it into their manifestos. But the question is, how will they act within the German government and how will they take this to the EU level? If it comes to trade policy, this is no longer German competence. And this, thus the, you know, the question, can we leverage our economic power vis-a-vis China in the service of human rights? This is not only a German, it is also a European question. Mm. Um, and on Russia, I think not only the opposition, uh, and in particular the Greens think that uh, Nord Stream 2 was the biggest strategic mistake uh, Angela Merkel did. You can hear similar voices uh, also in other in other parties and even within the CDU. Um, right now, with uh, the agreement with the Biden administration, this topic, at least with Nord Stream 2, has been taken off the table uh, before the elections, which was definitely helpful to the Christian Democrats and the agreement to make sure uh, that Ukraine isn't totally sidelined um, is, of course, important. But the real question, in my view, is for the next German government, how does Germany play a role in defining an approach not only to Russia, uh, and Max has said many things on that, but towards our neighbors in the East between us and Russia, and whether Germany will be among those countries that uphold the uh, ambition of the EU, possibly together with the US, we'll see as well, to act as a transformative you know, partner to those countries who actually wish to move closer to the EU. And then there are some which definitely don't and move closer to Russia, like like Belarus under Russian pressure. But I think this is where the real question will, or the answer to the question will show whether the next German government will actually be willing to, at least in its immediate neighborhood, to take a stronger role and to actually offer opportunities for those countries. Yeah, just briefly uh, answer to to Daniela and then we can move on. I agree with you that it will be very interesting what will remain eventually of that more principled stance of the Greens once they're part of the government, if they are. And I also agree with Christian that there is a coalitionsausschuss and this will all be watered down, let's say. But I still think it does make a difference which government, uh, whether the Greens are part of it or not. And on the other, the other thing I would just like to under, underpin and, and, and stress again what, what Daniela said is, I think what Merkel has managed to do is a very interesting thing. I mean, in a way, she has kept sort of her stand as a liberal democracy, as a leader of a liberal democracy, while underneath that, dealing with Russia and China as if there was no tomorrow. I mean, I'm a bit overdoing it now, but still. And this kind of double bind uh, way of governing and sort of holding the balance. I remember her at the G7 in Cornwall where where I was really standing up against a very clear or aggressive um, uh, wording in a, in a Abschlusskommuniqué towards China, because she said, we have to work together with China. And the same is, is with Russia also having the German economy in mind, of course. But I think once she's gone, I mean, even if Schultz pretends to be her, he will not be able to uphold that. And I think Germany will have to play a, a clearer and bigger role and will be more decisive, has to decide where it stands on these more principled issues. And, and there I completely agree with Daniela. That will be very interesting because this cannot go on like that, I think. Mm. Not, not. 
I mean, I'd like to press you all on this. I mean, my sense, and I, I know next to nothing about Germany, but the sense from outside is that even in the CDU, there's been a sort of shift over the last couple of years in terms of attitude towards China, partly because of the pandemic, Hong Kong, whatever it might be, that actually this notion that you can neatly separate our economic and trading relationship from everything else has come under threat. But do, will it matter materially if they find themselves in coalition with a party like the Greens? who've taken a very different sort of step. In practical terms, what might that mean? I mean, everyone can come out with different rhetoric about China, but in practical terms, in terms of action, is there stuff that might might really shift that we can think about? I'm taking this as a no. <laughs> well, maybe I'll just throw out a couple of thoughts on China. I think that, um, you know, the struggle within Germany is the same sort of struggle that that every country is going through vis-a-vis -vis China. Australia just went through it where you have an intense economic partnership or relationship with China, but then you sort of start seeing the foreign policy costs. And so part of the reason for the uh, for Australia changing course on the submarine was realizing that it was actually going to view China more in an adversarial way as opposed to a potential economic partner. Same thing happened in the United States uh, during the Trump years. You see two camps of the business community and kind of the foreign policy community at loggerheads, and it sort of uh, plays out. I think the challenge in Germany is that Germany, at least under uh, Angela Merkel, had, has very much, the business community has, I think, a much greater say in German foreign policy. It's not complete, it's not 100%, than in other countries. And so you see Germany at times practicing quite a mercantilist foreign policy. So I think in some ways, Germany has further to go on pivoting sort of toward a, a, a stronger China policy because the business community has, has been uh, so reliant on the Chinese market. But I think you're seeing that transition happen. I'm just not quite, I think it's gonna be, continue to be a, a constant sort of struggle where at times you sort of see strong statements maybe on human rights issues, but then uh, the next day, there, there's things that you wouldn't consider strong. And I think this is part of um, a transition that other countries are, are going to go through as well, or have been going through. Anyone else want to chip in? You don't have to, but if anyone else got anything to say on... This is a fantastic question, and it's so, it's so wonderfully parochial as a Brit that I'm going to pose it to you. What outcome should Boris Johnson hope for? So I had I had a um, um, an interview on on that question, and I thought, okay, this was bound to happen. <laughs> someone asked, "What does the German election mean for uh, for Boris Johnson and Brexit?" And sort of my my response was very little, um, because Germany's role in in Europe has through Brexit even more become the the role of a compromise seeker of trying to hold it together and taking everyone's concerns into account. Um, so it's, it's, it's not going to be that Germany shapes a sort of different view of Europe because Angela Merkel is gone and there's another chancellor, uh, but trying to find a common European view on, you know, the relationship with Britain. Um, and the other thing is that in, in Germany, at least what I can gather is, um, the frictions over trade, the Northern Ireland protocol and so forth, um, seem to overshadow all other forms of cooperation outside of severe crises, obviously. Um, and the response that I'm sure the British government will also get is, okay, if you want to negotiate trade, please go to Brussels. And in all other things, we want to cooperate with you, but we can best do that in a relationship that 
where both parts parties trust each other, where there's sort of um, a, a good bilateral relationship. And it, as long as we have these frictions over the over trade and Brexit, um, this is going to always going to be difficult. And this is sort of if if Britain wants to uh, wants to improve uh, relationship with Germany on many of those issues, then I think the first step is for Britain to sort out the the, the issues over over trade in the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah, I, I just chip in briefly because I, I agree with Christian there because I think from observing the British government here quite closely. Uh, for my day-to-day job. I mean, I, I think it's quite striking that that for now, the British government is still trying to mostly establish a bilateral relationship with Germany while completely ignoring the EU as, an, as a political entity. And this will not work, no matter which is uh, who is forming the next government in Germany, because whatever, I mean, German policy, foreign policy, especially trade policy, is so closely interlinked with the EU that it will always be very, very difficult um, for a British government to to start good bilateral relations as long as it's ignoring or scapegoating the EU uh, in a way as it is doing it at the moment. And the Northern Ireland conflict will be overshadowing this uh, big time, I think, if that isn't sorted out. Uh, it doesn't really matter which uh, who, who is the new, uh, who is sort of at the helm of a new German government. This will always remain a problem for both every possible coalition that might be formed. That's really interesting. I mean, you hear two discrete takes on the uh, UK-Germany declaration from June when Angela Merkel came on her sort of valedictory trip. The one is, look at this language, it's incredibly warm, they're setting up these far-reaching sort of means of sort of coordinating and all these sort of ministerial level meetings. This is obviously evidence that the Germans are keen to build a very strong bilateral relationship. The other thing you hear is, ah, but look at those phrases in those first paragraphs where it says, you know, the EU relationship is the key relationship for Germany. Everything's going to be very transparent. Don't, I mean, it, it, you know, sort of sotto voce, don't even think about playing divide and rule because it's not going to work. Now, the, at some level, there's a tension between those two interpretations. Which, which one is closer to the truth, would you think? I think they're both true. Yeah, okay. both absolutely true. There is an interest. There are interest in these consultations. There is an interest in a close bilateral relationship, and it's also true that you know those relationships mostly go through through the EU when it comes to economics and trade and so forth. So they, these these are not contradictory interpretations of that statement from a German perspective. They are both parts of the same coin. No, I agree. I think there's a big interest in Germany to uphold the relations between Germany and Britain at the moment, but this cannot be. Uh, cannot get into a conflict with the EU um, when it comes to foreign or trade policy. And it's not a contradiction. I think it's, it's, yeah. Okay, some wonderfully left field questions today. Uh, so I'm going to pose them to you and see what you do with them. This one is, what have been Angela Merkel's greatest achievements and greatest failures in office? You know, one of each, you don't have to do a, a long list. <laughs> okay, then I start with an easy economic one. Um, and this is, is sort of the, the, the transition of the uh, neoliberal reformer as which Angela Merkel started her 2005 campaign to become German Chancellor, then being forced to do no reforms at all um, uh, through a coalition with the Social Democrats and seeing the German economy boom anyway uh, without doing anything, um, despite the economic establishment in 2005 telling her that uh, the sick man of Europe was still the sick man of Europe and needed more reform. And so I think this has probably informed her economic view of Germany that 
sort of the, econo- the economy thrives on its own and there's no further reform needed. And I think that has led her a bit too far because there are issues that the German economy faces which are quite critical. And her last 10 years in office would have been the perfect opportunity to address exactly those. Because most of these require quite a bit of public investment at a time when the entire Western world was calling on Germany to do just that. And interest rates were in, in, in almost a permanent fall and are now negative. So it's a, it's, a, it's a huge missed opportunity. And that we used to call her the climate chancellor just because she showed an interest in climate uh, without doing much in these, uh, in, in these last 10 years. Um, I think is is one of those is probably the biggest missed opportunity of her of her chancellorship. Anyone else with thoughts on this? I I think from or Danielle, go ahead. Um, or I'll, I'll just say quickly. I think that the two that sort of stand out to me is I think I think Germany's response to the euro crisis um, or her response uh, to the Greek debt crisis was just. Um, shockingly short-sighted uh and and helped sort of facilitate um a, a huge economic decline or depression or stagnation uh within within europe over the last decade and especially in southern europe and greece and spain and, and italy when that was i think a you know immediate action right away would have uh helped save that and i think that um uh, you know to her credit i think then during COVID with the European recovery package was brought along and then made that concession. The only thing I'd say is I think part of why she's so revered in, in the United States though, is the response after 2014 in Crimea, where Germany is really critical to creating any united European policy on Russia. They're kind of the, the linchpin. And the, there wasn't a united uh, European policy toward Russia pre-Crimea in 2014 and afterward. Uh, establishing joint U.S.-European sanctions was really down to Germany and Angela Merkel pushing for it. And I think that was a, a really important step. Um, so I think those two kind of uh, are the ones that I would point to. I mean, I can just briefly say, I mean, there's so many things that cross your mind. That's, I think, why people were, well, we were a bit like, <laughs> yeah. what, what? It's been a long time. It's been a long time, exactly. But when I just look back, I mean, I'm living in Great Britain since 2008 now. I mean, I think what she, looking at it from abroad, what she achieved, especially look at Germany from here, is that she somehow detoxified the German brand for Britain. I mean, up to the Brits uh, famously misunderstanding her role in Brexit uh, because they thought she would help Cameron out and then uh, same happened later during the negotiation. So I think that is a big achievement in a way that that, that she really managed to to lead this transition transition into a Germany that isn't longer seen as a threat up to the point that it became slightly sleepy by now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that certainly this, this, this sort of being aware of Germany's history and um, pushing on by showing to the world that Germany is a peaceful country. Now it has become utterly complacent to a point that, that defense policy isn't, isn't even a topic anymore and seen as toxic, which is, has nothing to do and should not, not have nothing to do with German's history anymore. The, the kind of idea that Germany has finally take up on his, his role as a global player in the world is something she didn't really introduce in people's heads. And I think that is a failure in a way because it's way over time to, to change course here. Sorry, Daniela, I kept you waiting. Sorry about that. Did you want to come in? 
Yes, no, no problem. Well, first of all, on Germany's global leadership, uh, it is interesting to see how she became the leader of the Western world without really doing much. Exactly. And uh, remember very vividly the Munich Security Conference two years ago when it still happened physically and, and she got standing ovations for a speech, which obviously was, was under the impression of the Trump presidency. And, and she presented herself really as the German and European voice and really, really the, the Western world. And if you then look at actual policies to back that up, there's not that much. Um, on 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 Europe and crisis management, um, I, I agree with Max that the price of managing the Eurozone crisis because of the German approach was higher than it would have had to be had we had had we moved earlier and had different policies been embraced. Um, however, I think to her credit, there was an enormous push within Germany coming out of the finance ministry at the time to actually make Greece exit the European Union and. If the stories are right, it was really her who understood and suddenly switched from this accounting logic uh, to a geopolitical logic that you, that this should not happen, that this would be detrimental to Europe, not only because you can't ring fence an exit from the Eurozone that easily in terms of financial overspills, but also because the political repercussions were so, so important. The thing that puzzles me, and here I'm back to, to what Christian said, is how she, as someone who who is known for her scientific approach to policymaking and thinking things through and starting at the end where you want to get them and go back, that in her tenure, um, investment into our future, frankly, in the field of technology, but also in the field of energy transition, was so low. Um, and, and, you know, that now we look at ourselves in comparison, even to other Europeans, that, that we have totally underinvested in infrastructure, in tech, uh, in yeah, everything I said so far. And so this is really why the Greens at this point, and going back to the elections on next Sunday, why they have quite an easy time to say, and vis-a-vis the Christian Democrat Chancellor and the Social Democrats, the coalition partner, um, that they are the party that will actually bring innovation and a certain degree of disruption, although Germans don't really like disruption, but at least change. Um, and, and their agenda is indeed one of, of making Germany fit for the future. And those transition tasks, which Merkel really didn't approach the way she, she could have. I think we should probably just pause for a moment on the climate crisis, because that's one area where people are looking at this very, very carefully and thinking, you know, particularly if you get a government with the Greens in, are we going to see a decisive shift? I think most people agree that actually Angela Merkel hasn't done that much. Will we see a, sh- an, an, a more marked shift away from coal, for instance, under a new chancellor with a new coalition? Do you think that's one area where we might see real movement? So means will absolutely insist on, a, on an ambitious climate agenda in government. Um, I think the coal exit has become a sort of totemic issue, which is not really addressed in the way it should. Um, so there was a, you know, with big Tarada, a big negotiated coal exit in 2038. But this is really just a regional development program. It has nothing to do with coal exit. The coal exit will happen because of the carbon price period. And this will happen before 2038. And everybody knows it, right? But the politicians needed to set a sort of end goal of this and make sure that the regions heavily affected get the sort of investment funding they need to build a different economy regionally. So it's, it's all, it has a bit of a, it has, it has a sort of totemic importance also for the green movement. Um, but I, I think this is the wrong focus. 
Um, I think we haven't made much progress. Um, I think one of our flagship uh, initiatives in the, since 1999 has been to subs heavily subsidize renewable energy generation. And I think most Germans think this was to decarbonize Germany, uh, when in reality, it was a sort of program to make technology cheaper for the entire world. And I think this is sort of the biggest contribution of Germany's climate policy over the last 20 years is that we have so heavily subsidized renewable energy generation that we made renewable energy for the rest of the world cheaper. Um, but now we are lagging behind. And I think we are on third or fourth spot when it comes to carbon emissions per head, uh, per capita in Europe, um, because we got the order wrong of how we exit nuclear energy. Um, and we, we sort of scaled down the renewable energy support because it was becoming eye-wateringly expensive. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the, the combination of very ambitious climate targets and the sort of backlog of work we still need to do leaves a completely full agenda, no matter who comes into, into government, um, to, to, to work off. Uh, but I think that the Greens will make clear that they want uh, a very ambitious green spending agenda from the start, from, from year one. And, and this is what they're going to get in either coalition, because that's where they put their priority. So I think it does matter whether the Greens come into parliament or not. And I get the impression from what you're saying that we're talking about actions, not just words here, because far too often when it comes to climate, you get good rhetoric. Well, we, ha we have very ambitious climate targets, and now we have a constitutional court. And that is a very big step that a court in Germany said, well, listen, uh, if you have these climate targets and you can take them seriously, you need to work hard to make them happen and not leave all the hard work to the next generation. That the constitutional court takes such a more monumentous decision uh, I think it's still not, it's still a bit underappreciated. Um, so, well, they've boxed themselves in, right? And haven't done enough. And so it will be a very steep hill to climb. And the Greens have the most ambitious agenda in terms of investment, but also on the social dimension have the most ambitious agenda to make sure that this is politically acceptable, even though conservative press tries to sort of uh, um, picture the Greens as a sort of, they are taking away your car or they're making everything more expensive. Uh, it's actually quite the opposite. So it's, uh, you know, I think, I think the Greens and government would be good to make sure that we really do make progress in the next decade and, and not leave it to the next. Anyone else want to come in on climate? Okay, I mean, a couple of things about sort of intra-EU policies and politics. The first of which, I suppose, is could we see a shift in German attitudes toward democratic backsliding, a harder German line on this? under a new chancellor. Many people accuse Chancellor Merkel of being very, very soft on Orban in particular, but also Poland. But do you think that's something that's liable to change? Will there be a sort of more muscular approach? That's probably the wrong word, but... It's probably difficult for a German government because it will all it has to be linked to the EU policy. And it, I mean, the EU has partly tried in the very beginning. I, I used to be the Poland correspondent for ARD years ago and I, I remember the beginnings of trying to sort of um, have a more muscular approach towards Poland and Hungary and it's really hard because the EU isn't set up for that and uh, I think a German government um, no matter who is going to head it will have a similarly hard time to really get something changed in, in terms of strategy even if the wording might be different so I'm, I'm a bit skeptical there to be honest. But to be fair, I mean, just take one example, uh, Orban was tolerated in the EPP for an awfully long time. And that wasn't an area where you were waiting for the EU to act. That was an area where Merkel's standing could have led to a policy shift much earlier, surely. 
that's true. But I mean, that was also because Merkel for a very long time was uh, sort of like now with China in a way, it had always this approach that you thought, uh, let's just try to keep on good terms with Poland. And then there is another election and things might change. I mean, that is certainly has proven to be a bit naive in hindsight. So, yeah, but I still think it will be difficult for German government to really change things in the EU as it is set up now. I think what, what, yeah, one thing I would just add is, you know, I don't know if there's sort of a, a silver bullet that Germany has that can sort of solve the democracy decline, the rule of law issues with, with Hungary and Poland. But I think a new German government will be pressed to, to use its leverage a lot more. And I think it's clear that Germany hasn't used its considerable influence and leverage uh, to the degree that I think Brussels or Washington uh, would have hoped. And so I think there'll be a lot of pressure for a new German government to do that. And I think this is, you know, frankly, one of the major challenges confronting the EU over the next decade mm-hmm. is that whether EU uh, rules, regulations, EU rule of law um, can simply be ignored. Uh, and I think that that is not something that Brussels can sort of just let slide and that there will be this sort of escalation and Germany is going to be, a, 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 you know, the, as the most powerful economy, most powerful country within Europe, uh, is going to have to play a pivotal role in, I think, um, in, in, in that debate going forward in a way that it kind of has sidestepped um, uh, over the last decade. Thank you. Christian and Daniela, either of you want to? Well, I, I think there is indeed a new opportunity to up the political pressure. Annette has mentioned all the procedures that are in place in Brussels. And yes, these are EU-driven procedures, but Germany is the largest EU member state and not commenting on what happened in Hungary and keeping Orban, you know, cozy in the European People's Party for so long. I think this was a lack of political leadership where it could have been happening. And now what we see, you know, the focus right now is, of course, Hungary is going uh, for, for elections. Uh, and, and there will be a lot to watch how they, how the campaigns will unfold and so on and so on, and, you know, into next year. But the more immediate case is, is Poland and the question of uh, the respect of, of the European Court of Justice ruling. And this is, I mean, this is really substantive. And if governments don't speak up and leave it just to the European Commission, I think this is this is a problem and it's a substantive issue. And, and I think, you know, Germany as the neighbor should approach this in a bilateral way, uh, but also speak, speak up more publicly and share that there are real concerns for the fundamental principles of the EU. Christian, are you happy to leave it at that? Do you want to be? Just didn't want to leave you out. Uh, and and the, the, the other sort of internal EU thing, I'm quite proud of myself that it's taken over an hour to get to this, is the Franco-German uh, partnerships. I mean, I mean, there are layers upon layers, aren't there? There are the individual things like with defence and macroeconomic policy and whether you're going to see convergence or fighting. But there's also the question about sort of EU leadership. Does Do the French have the upper hand in this relationship now, partly because of Macron, partly because... You know, there's a change of changing of the guard in Germany. How do we foresee this relationship developing and functioning over these next sort of four years or so? Small issues to ponder. Well, I believe the next month will be pretty tricky because Macron is preparing for his EU presidency, which starts on January 1st, and then French elections, which happen in April and in May 2022. And he's now the candidate who will 
probably stand for re-election, who came into this office as a, you know, convinced European entrepreneur who launched lots of ideas and had many initiatives uh, in all those, you know, years. However, never got a strong response from Germany. And the problem now is it's very likely, given this calendar, that he will speak up on European issues either while coalition negotiations are still ongoing in Germany or when the new government comes into office and still has to find itself. So it will be really tricky and Berlin should try and be helpful uh, in a way to to him in, in his EU presidency because he will need to have a good European story to tell when it comes to the hot phase of the election campaign. Let's hope he doesn't do another speech as long as the Sorbonne one, though, from a personal point of view. Who wants to, who knows to come in next? Yeah, I, I agree with Daniela. It's the timing of the German and the French election is not great uh, in combination with the French presidency. Um, and there are some thorny issues after this pandemic that, that, uh, mm. that Europe needs to tackle. I mean, in my area, it's, of course, the, the, the fiscal macro side um, where a new German government very quickly has to make up its mind so what the direction, it, which direction it wants to take, both domestically and at the European level. Um, the good news, I guess, is that the likely chancellor, if we, if we believe the current polling, will be Olaf Scholz, with whom he has been interacting in the past and uh, who's been the vice chancellor of Germany for a while. Um, and so that in the meantime, uh, you know, there's, there will be close contacts uh, behind closed doors uh, between the two. I'm sure. And so to prepare not to have any sort of frictions or disappointments in that time, and at least on rhetoric, be very supportive of French ideas until the presidential election campaign. I'm not going to let you get away with this, I've decided. I'm going to push you a little bit on this, Christian, and just say even with Schultz, when it comes to post-pandemic recovery and fiscal policy at the EU level, there are still going to be those sort of traditional divisions between the French and the Germans, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't want to underplay these divisions. And these divisions are sort of have, a, I think, decade long tradition. Right? Uh, and, and I think in, in the sense of how Germany's role in the EU has changed, uh, I think that has, has, has exposed some of those frictions maybe a bit more because the, the flurry of French ideas is, is hitting a Germany that is more aware of its role, of its mm. central role as, as having to take into account also some of the interests that were previously taken into account by Britain. And so, you know, Britain's exit yeah. of the EU has not helped um, uh, Germany manage that relationship and, and it, Germany has to find its new, new balance. So yeah. if you, if you think, if you look back at sort of what, what Merkel's role was as sort of an honest broker and a seeker of compromise, Germany has to play that role as well, but also prepare Europe for some of the bigger challenges outside crises and this is a, I mean, it's, if we thought that, you know, Merkel had a difficult job because she had various crises to face and, and solve in, inside Europe, I don't think the next German chancellor will have it any easier, actually, um, because the, the, even without crises, the, the, the tasks ahead uh, are, are quite formidable. So, yeah. Annette and Max, I'm, I'm coming to you with the existing yeah. list, to which I'm going to add one more question as well, just for fun, which is, Germany has always been slightly reluctant to take this leading role in Europe. And of late, I've always sort of assumed that's partly down to the temperament of the chancellor who didn't like the limelight and doing that. Do you think we might see a more assertive Germany? And that could be a shock to the system for some EU member states, I suppose. But might that be a possibility going forward? I can't really see that, to be honest. I mean, um, I'm sure there is a lot of hope or, yeah, 
anticipation from the French side in Paris at the moment that Germany will be a bit clearer and, and, and probably also really has to take up that role a bit more. But when I look at the immediate future, I think it will be rather difficult because after these elections, let's say Scholz wins, we will have the German political landscape will shift. I, I assume that the CDU CSU will probably then turn further to the right. Scholz himself uh, has a party to deal with that isn't as centrist as he makes believe at the moment. So uh, I think um, there will be quite a lot of turmoil after these elections by um, by these big Volksparteien, these big popular parties or pop how do you call that in English? Anyway, the big main parties that that have lost so many voters. I mean, if you look at the at the at the polling at the moment, the um, SPD might win, but it's the worst polling I think they've ever had. So the big theme here is fragmentation mm. uh, in these in these elections, and 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 according to that, you will probably have a huge shift in the political landscape that will make it difficult to, at least in the foreseeable future, I think to to just uh, for 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 Olaf Scholz for example to just go and join the French and uh, yeah and join in with strategic autonomy um so i'm a bit skeptical and i think like daniela said the the next month will be rather tricky here for many reasons well we're all delighted to see the germans catching up when it comes to fragmentation and volatility i have to say <laughs> but uh, max uh so maybe i'm i'm uh I, i'm i think i'm a tad more optimistic but i think a lot will depend just on how the election results play out and i think a two-point shift to schultz gets 28 percent uh and you know is seen as like the clear victor i think that maybe gives a little bit more freedom of action i guess what i would say is that you know i think angela merkel over the last 16 years has sort of built up her has tremendous stature not just in europe but around the world it's built up tremendous trust. Now, I think what she used that trust and stature for was to not do very much and to say no to a lot of things, to say no to Macron, to say no to Obama in, in 2010 over the Greek desk, uh, debt crisis. Um, and so I, I think that that is uh, that a new German chancellor isn't going to have that sort of trust and stature to be uh, so obstinate on a lot of these issues. In, in particular, I think there'll be a real desire to kind of have, uh, to, to see Paris as a real partner. And so I think you, you will see something, uh, some movement. I also think there's a recognition, if Schultz is the prime minister, that the, or, sorry, the chancellor, that, that uh, 10 years of austerity wasn't the right approach and that there needs to be uh, uh, something on European fiscal policy. Whether you'll have the freedom of action to do that, I think, I think is a big question. The last quick point, because I know we're running out of time, is on, on, on German defense that I think this is an issue that Washington is going to bang on about. I mean, it's un sort of unconscionable to me that Germany with 16 years of conservative rule with, with uh, negative interest rates has a military that is in total shambles. I mean, this is a, it's unbelievable. And so I think when it comes to European defense, I, I think you could see real pressure on Germany um, to, to make, make that a, a priority. And I think that could be an issue where uh, in, in six months from now, we're having a very different conversation about the structure of, of EU defense. Now, we'll see. I think a lot, lot has to happen, but I think that's an area where I could see a new German government perhaps moving. I mean, without wanting to sort of be overly pessimistic in response, I think I've heard that tune before. But uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, is it, am I right in saying there's a German presidency of the G7 coming up? In the relatively near future, am I? 
surely one of you can tell me. I think at some point. I can't. I haven't thought beyond September 26th. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I was just wondering if that wasn't, wouldn't be a real sort of test of the sort of ambitions of a new German chancellor. But given that we don't know, we'll leave that. So, I mean, we've got a couple of minutes left. So I'm going to do what I threatened to do. And I suppose you can pass if you must. But I'm going to ask you for your predictions for Sunday. And we promise not to clip these and tweet them when you're wrong. Well, we don't really promise that at all. But Annette? Oh, you're on mute. Um, as I said in the very beginning, I think it's the most unpredictable election so far. And I, I wouldn't uh, be surprised if there was a big surprise and uh, Laschet would uh, make up at the very end a bit more and get a bit more votes than people do think now. But I still think that Olaf Scholz will probably be the next chancellor. And yes, please don't clip that. <laughs> Max? Uh, so, I, I mean, this is just based off the trend of how things are moving. And generally, when elections seem to be moving in a certain direction, they just sort of, it, it, there's a, a the, the late deciders tend to go with the candidate that has momentum. And it clearly looks like Schultz. And it wouldn't surprise me if he slightly overperformed the polls. Um, but, uh, but again, you know, we're talking about very narrow margins. And maybe there is sort of a late CDU vote that just sort of, materializes so i i I, you know i I would i think schultz looks like he is in prime position i would say you know we can edit these clips to get rid of the (laughs) hedge don't you uh christian yeah i i I personally see more down than upsides for the cdu um, because laschet doesn't give cdu voters really a a reason to turn out there's been a lot of postal voting happening over the last weeks uh, experts think that it might be more than 50, even 60% of German voters voting by mail. So a lot of the voting has already happened during the time when Laschet was doing particularly badly. So there is a bit of a sort of a, a, a turnaround for the CDU and, and the SPD has probably reached its peak. Uh, but I think Scholz will still win and the, the majority or sort of the win will be so painful that I don't think the CDU can reasonably claim to have a mandate from the voters to lead a new government. So I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that, that, that Scholz and the SPD will lead the next government. Daniela, a final word. Well, I agree. Um, there is, you know, the, the, the rise of Olaf Scholz has held for quite a few weeks now. So he is re- pretty solid in, in his pulling four to five, pulling four to five percentage points ahead of, of Amin Laschet. Um, what I hope for really is is that whoever wins wins by not too slim a margin because um, coalitions nego- coalition negotiations will be really tricky and we know that the FDP is the kingmaker um, and so I you know I wouldn't exclude that even if Scholz wins if the FDP decides uh, they p- would prefer another coalition it is possible that that they blow it up uh, between the Christian Democrats uh, the Greens and um, and themselves and and move uh, sorry the the SPD the Greens and themselves and move towards a Christian Democrat um, chancellor. We'll see. It, it will be exciting, and I think Sunday will be extremely exciting because if there's a slim margin, this will move uh, all all of the evening. But then the negotiations afterwards are really closely to be watched. And just one word on the G7. Yes, Germany has the G7 presidency, and from what I hear. Uh, Olaf Scholz, coming from his role as finance minister, has put quite a lot of thought in preparing this. So uh, if it's him, I think they will have a quick start in taking over that office. Interesting. 
Well, listen, first and foremost, thank you so much to the four of you. This has been, I found this utterly fascinating and you've, you've coped with my sometimes unreasonable questions really, really well. So thanks for taking the time to do that. Thanks to our audience. Just to remind you, please fill in the survey. Apologies to those of you whose questions I haven't asked. Though I have to say, I think I did rather well today. Uh, and just as a plug for future things, we're party conferencing from next week and we've got a variety of events. I know Paula Surridge is speaking at a couple of really good events. We've got an in conversation with Andy Burnham. They're all certainly going to appear as videos on our website, even if we're not going to stream them all because Wi-Fi at these things is notoriously, well, rubbish. Uh, but for the moment, thank you all very, very much indeed. Enjoy the weekend when it gets here. And particularly to you four, that was fantastic. Thank you all. I hope we can invite you back to future events. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. All the best. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye -bye.